Hello, and welcome to the Growth Mindset Podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration and exploration. Join me, your host, Sam Harris, as I discover how mindset can help you do incredible things through my conversations with the world's most interesting people, from tech billionaires to leading scientists, best-selling authors to notorious hackers. The goal is to increase our collective wisdom and attitudes to make us all happier and healthier, wiser and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? This week on the podcast, we have Dan Murray Serta. He runs his own podcast called Secret Leaders, which is generally one of my favorite podcasts of all time. It's similar to How I Built This with Guy Raz, but it's just kind of funnier and somehow more engaging. And as a bonus, all the guests, well, not all, a lot of the guests are British and there's a 50% female ratio, which is just quite nice and refreshing when you're listening to business, which is often uh, white, old people. But we go into that in the podcast. And as well as Dan's podcast, we also talk about the number of startups that he's ran, which is quite a few. He had an initial career in advertising and became a bit of an expert at raising awareness. And so his Daily Deal website managed to break a million in revenue with their first launch. His next startup, which was an app, managed to get 10,000 users on the first night that they started, which is pretty insane for any release. And it was regularly one of the top apps in the App Store. So... It hasn't all been success and fun and games for Dan. He's had a number of failures as well, which we go into. So it's just a really interesting episode for all things business and marketing and podcasting, really. Dan is currently launching a new health company called Dawn, and they've got a really brilliant mailing list. Dan's quite humble about it, but we do go into the strategy behind how he's trying to craft the perfect mailing list, which is his end goal, and it's quite interesting. And yeah, Dan's just a super fascinating and intelligent guy, and you're going to learn a lot. So keep tuned. We do discuss Dan's strategy for how to record live intros in the podcast and so I'm going to leave the um, start of this interview where I try myself to do a quite terrible and unprepared live intro to Dan just for your own observation of me being crap basically. So enjoy. So welcome to the podcast. We have Dan, the uh, co-host and founder of Secret Leaders. Correct. One of the top podcasts in Europe for business and um, one of my favorite podcasts. Thank you. Some amazing individuals and insights about founder of Moonpig and Babylon Health and Shazam. Lots of cool things that you just don't expect. It's really great. And then you're also working on a secret-ish startup, which is about to go public. <laughs> it's not It's not that secret. It's just, I'm in that weird stage where I'm investigating trademarks for the name and all that mm. stuff and found out I can't use the one that I've currently got. And so my current startup's name is Dawn, but I can't use it. And I'm actually currently in the process of, so fingers crossed, trademarking Heights, which would be our new name, which is, you know, it does all the stuff that I currently need to do for brand positioning, etc., Looks like I can get all the trademarks in the categories I need for that in the UK. I'm just looking into it for America. But it's amazing what a fuss the whole thing is. But I know because it's not my first company, this is actually really important to just make sure you can do these things. I've not been in the business of promoting my startup simply on the basis of I'm like, heads down, crack on, it doesn't matter. And once you tell people what you're doing, it's so much harder to then tell them it's something else. Yes, although this does go against the uh, philosophy of 
tell people what you're doing straight away and don't keep it a secret. But so you have done market research and spoken to people about the idea. Correct. Yeah, just so not this is public. The, the, yeah, exactly. So we're in product development. We did 200 customer interviews initially. We're still doing some more and we've got a mailing list, which we've been growing organically. But, you know, I had exactly the same, like a friend last night was like, why haven't you told everyone about your mailing list? And I was like, every week we grow by a minimum of 50%, which is small to start off with, right? We've got just over a thousand subscribers in six weeks, but that's actually pretty good because we haven't yeah. told anyone. The thing we're really proud of is we have an open rate currently on average of 64%, which is mm. amazing. 10% clicks. I know all of this because I looked at MailChimp about two minutes before you came here. So yeah. this is very fresh information. Nice. So the reality for me is the right way to do a startup anyway is weekly iterative feedback. So at some point, that newsletter will be a work of glorious art I'm incredibly proud of and want everyone to know. But I don't need the whole world to sign up to my newsletter at the moment because the unsubscribe and open rate will be lower on the pure basis that I'm probably not creating my best work yet. So all I need is enough people qualitatively every week to help me improve. And if I take their feedback and improve it consistently, over time, when I do do more you know, publicity for it and make sure I'm piling on thousands of users rather than tens of users, the open rate will still be really high because the content will be better. Yeah, that's a really good point. You can kind of learn your craft as you go along. And sort of what I've done with the podcast is and I have gone back to some of the episodes that I first released in the first 10 and been like, oh my God, this is embarrassing. And mm. just sort of edited out really inane stuff you just no one needs to hear and fix the sound a bit. Uh, it's and... so funny. I'm so much better at it now than I was. I sat and listened to my first series. I was embarrassed because I recorded the whole thing quite quickly. Over the space of maybe two or three weeks, we just knocked out all the interviews. So the style's very similar. Yeah. And there's not a lot of feedback to go on. I just did it. And then we put it out and then we just saw yeah i'm legitimately embarrassed by how bad an interviewer i was because didn't listen to the answers generally if you've got an interview podcast i've learned like you're there to listen to the guest a little bit more than the host depending on what it is and obviously some people like tim ferris doesn't shut up so that's yeah. his style but i think that's kind of his weakness now because of i've heard him say the same thing so many times i just i get a bit bored listening to tim ferris because yeah. i feel like i know what i'm gonna hear even when he has an amazing guest it's still i'm the same yeah i mean I, he does get unbelievable yeah guests. he does have some incredible interviews to be fair but still i don't know my initial joy of listening to it is just not so strong as it used to be same it's from that which is weird but yeah it's kind of hard dilemma that you have as a host kind of thing when you're trying to steer it because sometimes people can be a bit slow and maybe boring but then if you rush them on to the next question like you miss the good parts i found everyone has something interesting to say but sometimes it's just a question of a lot more editing and better questioning and waiting sometimes and yeah i quite like the way you've got like a little warm-up questions and they're generally like related to the person which is quite good which i haven't done that much of do you think that's helped a lot? Because you've just always done that. Well, Rich and I have a difference of opinion. Like, I think it's really nice because it's just a little insight. He thinks it's really tacky. But then speaking last night to Joe Malone and Justine, they were both like, oh, I quite like that, actually, because it got me in the mood. Yeah, I was speaking to my friend who says when she was doing other interviews, but just for journalism, she found that the seventh question was when it got interesting. Like, it doesn't matter what order she did the questions in, they would only be interesting after number seven. So even if, like, normally she'd always ask the same question, number 10, it was always the best answer. If you then put that at number two, it would always be shit. And so she just sort of, like, tried to, like, keep the first seven questions a bit shorter and, like, more throwaway. On that sort of, I was like, should I do an intro now? Or I try and do the intro. So it's funny, I, like for the whole second season, I did the intro in front of the guest, which I still do now, but like I would always cock up the intro 100% of the time. So then I had to like re-record it, which is totally fine. It gets straight into the interview. But actually, I've been noticing like more recently, I've been getting the intro spot on. And it's quite fun because then I intersplice it with, is that true? 
Or yeah. did I say something? And I'm like, do you think that's fair? And they're like, yep, yeah, actually. And when I listen to it back, it's so much nicer to have some interaction in the intro. Because it's like you can tell someone's reading something. So then to mix it up is a bit like, oh, of course, it catches you off guard. Yeah. But you did. it wasn't your first season all entirely... Oh, I can't remember. But you had like, quite a lot where you were doing it in your studio. No, our first season, I was doing it all in office rooms. Yeah, I did some of those and... You just get somewhere like really echoey or... They were like, terrible. Oh, no. <laughs> it's annoying because they're all the first ones people listen to and then yeah. it's shit. It might even be worth re-editing, actually, as I think about it. This is the way it comes on the iTunes. On iTunes, it just like starts at number one as opposed to starting at the most mm. recent, which is annoying. So the first one, even though it's an interesting episode because it's Nick Jenkins from Moonpig, it's like shit sounding because it's in a fucking echoey room. But yeah, I remember it being a really good episode. Wasn't it? Oh, wow, that's so cool. Yeah, he's amazing as well. Yeah. He's a fucking dude. Oh, I got lucky with him. He's really cool. Okay, uh, boss. Nice. Yeah. What are your top tips for editing? Well, we now are in a fortuitous position where we have an editor. So we actually pay a company to do it. It's great. So plug for Lower Street who've been brilliant for us. Um, So Harry actually takes care of all of it. And he's quite brutal, which is incredibly helpful for us. So we have a target of getting down to 40 minutes. Um, That's not been possible on some episodes. So it was a really good example. Like Damien's, which is our first episode, is about 55 minutes. And he was literally begging us to cut stuff to get it down to 40. But it's a very funny episode because he's very funny and we have a really natural rapport on it. I've never met him before. But the whole thing from start to finish is interesting and funny. So it becomes hard as the host who had that experience to know what to cut. Yeah, it all feels quite like personal to you. So everything seems good. <laughs> then, so it can be really difficult. To but like when you're thinking about your listeners, it's like he mix. you know, in his interview, he mixes between being hilarious, being self-deprecating, talking about the story, talking about the hard times, talking about his mental health. It's like, which one of those would you cut that is invaluable to listener for the mm. sake of it just saying 40 something as opposed to 50 something? Yeah, definitely. I found I've got a lot better at just making things more concise. Sometimes there's a lot of fluff around what it is. Or often when I'm asking a question, I might say like three or four sentences that are basically the same thing. And then the person might like repeat it back and kind of go in a bit of a path and then kind of cut back. And actually you can cut like a whole two minutes out and then going straight into it. But when you're listening to the whole sort of thing, you just don't notice that it could be so much cleaner and direct. Correct. Um, I mean, you were at my event last night. What's funny mm -hmm. is um, my wife at the end of it was like, you're so good at staying focused on the question. As in, she's like, when I ask people questions and they give me answers, I suddenly realize, oh shit, I've not listened to the answer. I zoned out. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, I did that all the time. I just don't do that now because I really, really tried so hard to train myself to focus. But I was like, what you just described is, I think pretty normal, as in most people do that. You know, I had to spend a whole hour last night literally going in my head, stay focused, stay focused, stay focused, because I know I'm going to, I know that there's going to yeah. stop talking and I'm going to be like, oh shit, there's an audience, 200 people in front of me, I can't not say anything. So, yeah. you know, you just learn to stay super zoned in on your guest. It's like proper, it's like meditation almost. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a dilemma because you always want to have a good question next, but then you don't want to miss out on the opportunity of actually hearing exactly what they're saying and oh, well, asking think. a relevant question that actually relates to what they've just been saying. Well, what's funny is like for the audience, they might not know the difference because you can always edit out your own stupidity. Mm. But the guest was there and the guest knows it puts them off. Yeah, definitely. It's a hard one. It's nicer to sort of be like, yeah, that was really good. <laughs> My brain's completely empty right now. Let me think about what the next question is sometimes. Exactly. <laughs> like, what would you say has been your top lesson from starting the podcast? Well, like I say, I think the most interesting self-reflection lesson has definitely been to shut up and listen. And that's actually really important. And I've learned to do that more in my life because of listening to myself back in podcasts. 
I'm probably like you and like anyone. I don't like the sound of my own voice when I listen to it back. It's it's shit, but I just have to get over it. But the value I get is understanding my imperfections as opposed to insecurities. And I don't have any kind of insecurity whatsoever over whether I'm talking too much or too little. I'm quite comfortable in my own skin like that. But when I hear myself back, I'm like, it doesn't matter how I perceive myself. I can clearly hear I'm not doing this well. That's a very different thing. Yeah, but when I'm in editor mode, I'm kind of constantly just assessing everything that I'm hearing and saying, how valuable is this to the listener? And I'm just listening to myself being like, oh, God, this is just useless. <laughs> Why am I talking? <laughs> just ask a useful question and let the person do that thing kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's been really helpful on a personal level. Like On a different level, one of the most useful things has actually just been the skill of interviewing. So doing the research on someone, learning a little bit about them, and then finding out how to make different guests give you the answer that you're basically searching for. That's kind of what you just said, right? You said the question number seven thing, you know, I just do a bit more probing. Or I hear someone say something broadly, like flippantly, and I'm like, can we talk more about that? And they're like, "Mm, you know, I don't really want to. I did it last night, you know, like particularly picked up on a point, like, can you please talk about that exact moment? And you can tell they didn't want to, but like once you've directly asked it, it's very difficult not to. Yeah. And like once they get into the story, it's suddenly it's exactly. not half as difficult. It's like, you exactly. know, oh, it's too long a story. It's going to be like 10 minutes. And then sort of after two minutes, you're like, oh, you just told this amazing story. Good. <laughs> yeah, that's quite funny. So what's your tips for researching then? How do you use Google quickly and make yeah, sort of... So, you know, the only interesting thing I have, it, it just depends on the size of the guest. Like I use Quora, but, you know, you have to have quite a big guest for Quora and Reddit. And you can sometimes unearth stuff that they don't want you to find on there, which is interesting. So when I did my research for, I interviewed the founder of cryptocurrency Ripple and Stella and Mt. Gox. So if you're into cryptocurrency, that's incredibly fascinating because Stella are doing really well at the moment. Mt. Gox is like one of the most maligned names. In... Yeah, didn't he like sell most of his Ripple at like the best time? No, he tried to but, and got blocked. Ah. Um, yeah, I remember being in the news anyway. Yeah, so he, and he's very interesting and very shy and very not what you think he'd be. And yeah, he at that point had $40 billion worth of Ripple. It's not that now. You know, he's still one of the co-founders of Ripple and it's still it's now the second biggest cryptocurrency in the world until tomorrow when it's yeah. Ethereum again. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's really interesting. And so anyway, for him, fascinating to be able to do the research, but also it was interesting to be able to talk to him directly with insight and information. So Mount Gox, there's a fuckload of stuff out there about that, right? As in the story that's out there in the ether, if you will, pardon the pun, is obviously all about how it was just a massive fraud and the guy took all the money. But actually, he sold it to the guy that did that. He's had a really bad reputation ever since. It's like, should you have sold it to him knowing what you did? And all this kind of stuff, which is like, look, those are fair questions, but that's bollocks. I can tell you as a founder, if you have someone coming in to buy your company that you've built up from scratch and it seems Mm. like a good deal, yes, of course, with hindsight, you want to be incredibly intelligent about who you sell to. But the guy was in his 20s. He'd got an offer for an exit like ahead of anyone else before cryptocurrency was even a thing like how many fucking people do you know that would turn that down six to twelve months later the guy turns out to be a fucking prick and ruins the whole company and like this like the whole reputation of it it becomes literally poster boy for what not to do but i don't know many people in the world that would be like literally a mark zuckerberg there's that few people that would turn down a really good exit offer and know what that person would do in the future it's kind of absurd so it was an interesting conversation to discuss that stuff it's ridiculous, but still super deep that you end up sort of feeling responsible for these things or yeah. getting blamed for stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, looking forward to that episode. <laughs> it's exciting. Okay. 
Can you go into why you started the podcast? Yes. I think for starters, my favorite podcast is probably how I built this because I love hearing how other founders did it. I just like I have a love hate relationship with Guy Raz. Uh, sometimes I think he's brilliant. Sometimes I think he's terrible. And I think he asks incredibly stupid questions and incredibly interesting questions. And look, all this stuff is easier said than done, right? So now I do it. I'm aware that I ask some stupid questions and I ask some good questions. I guess that's just the nature of it. And because he hosts probably the biggest in this category, it's hard not to expect more from him. So anyway, I was like, that is a really good podcast. I love it. Who does that in the UK? Not really anyone that I could think of. And beyond that, the thing about Guy Raz, which is a very American thing, is he's very sincere. The whole thing is very sincere. It's sweet, but it's sincere. You know, as an English person with a sense of humor, I want to just do stuff that's like more lighthearted, definitely interesting, definitely hard hitting, but it's good to have fun with guests. So that was one of the main reasons. And then the other one was noticing that every single business podcast I listened to were literally, as I said last night, but like all white male pale stale. So every single podcast, like 90% older men guests. And that's pretty obvious because it's a business podcast. But again, it's pretty obvious. It's quite boring. You can find the same everywhere. So we were like, what if we just aim to get 50-50? We make it a bit of fun. We ask the tough questions, but you can basically identify a unique identity just by doing those two things. And it was that simple. We were literally like, let's have a bit of a laugh on it so it's not too serious and let's invite women on the show. Yeah, you've done a really good job with that. It's hard, though, because women yeah. say no to publicity way more than men do. Like, genuinely, they're just not that fast. It's really interesting. So for every woman we ask on the show, I'd say three say no and one says yes, whereas mm. it's more like a 100% hit rate with men. Yeah, yeah. So I found it yeah, just so much easier to get men. And then, so as a result, most of my podcast has been men, which is quite frustrating. And then I kind of get a bit more excited when it's a woman. I don't want to be like, a, oh, because you're a woman, it would be really great. Because then like, I'm sort of, and yeah, poor Tyler. It was harder. <laughs> and this is the thing. So this is part of our thing. It was like, if we're going to commit to that, then we have to also be realistic. There's less female entrepreneurs. Not only are there less female entrepreneurs, there's also less incredibly successful female entrepreneurs, which is the type of people we like to get on the show because they have all the reflections and lessons that guests can learn from. And on average, they say no more than men. So it's obviously going to be much harder. So we then also have to be realistic about how much we can put out every year so that we can try and commit to this. Yeah. So whereas a lot of podcasts go for volume, loads and loads and loads of episodes, we're like, if that's our thing, we've got to be realistic. So we're like, we'll do 15 a year. We probably average just over 15 a year. So I think we just launched our third series. This is our third year, but we're probably five months ahead of schedule, so to speak, on release. So it's getting a little bit faster on the process. But it's interesting because you've got to be patient. And we've had to say no to loads of men. So we've had like really interesting people come to us, but like, can I be on the podcast? Or like, oh, my client would be amazing on your podcast. We're like, love to have him. But we filled up our slots of men guests on the show this season. So it would have to be next season. And the other thing that's really interesting, reflecting literally today with Rich. So we released episode one last week, last night, sorry. And we've already had in 24 hours, co-founder of Slack, the founder of Reed, the founder of Pimlico Plumbers, the founders of Grenade, and one other, I can't remember, like, either directly or their representatives get in touch to be like, we'd love to be on the show. And I'm like, wow, that's in 24 hours. That didn't happen in the last series at all. This is really interesting. We're both like, what is going on? That's amazing. Cool. Yeah, really <laughs> cool. But then that's the thing. But like, as I said to Rich, you know, the founder of Reed is James Reed. Yeah, male. Charlie Mullins is Pimlico Plumbers, male. The co-founders of Grenade is interesting because they're their husband and wife. But I was just saying to Rich, if we say yes to all of these, we just have to be considerate that it makes our job fucking hard yeah. to then find eight female guests who just need to be on it properly. Difficult. 
definitely. Because that, that, I just gave you all the names. None of them are women. We didn't yeah. know women coming to us being like, we'd like to go on the show. Yeah, I've started getting approached by a lot of people and I had to pinch myself a bit because I was like, wait, a year ago, I was just trying to get hold of anyone. And now I'm like, literally, oh God, another millionaire has emailed me. Fuck's sake. I mean, <laughs> whoa, this is great. So I'm so, so like being silly about this. Yeah, it's cool. Again, but it just with all this stuff, it depends on your strategy. Well, I want to start a podcast in my new company and I, I just have not been able to decide on the strategy. I mean, again, strategy comes from name, which comes from brand. So I'm going to just like work through that stuff first, but I want it to be much shorter and sweeter, like 20 minutes minutes mm. good for transit journeys so you're on your way to work or from work around basically performance and your brain that's the new vibe anyway but you know i just keep thinking like what what do i want do i want a really well produced podcast which is one route or do i want lots of content because yeah. if you want lots of content it's so much easier to do because you just get on a mic and you start talking and you have a guest and you just don't do a lot of editing and you hope that you have an interesting guest and that's kind of it. And then you can technically record 52 episodes a year if you want to. And so that's quite attractive because I'm like, that's a lot of content that's useful. But at the same time, it's like if I want to record something that's intro, like really good and different and challenges me in a different way to learn a new skill, um, then I probably wouldn't be able to put out like, again, more than 15, 20 episodes a season and have to, a year rather, I have to really think about it. Yeah, because I'm feeling like now I could literally go back through my own podcast and just curate episodes and do like, okay, five-part series just on how to start, launch, exit a company kind of thing and how to do your hiring. And... So we are doing that for Secret Leader. So um, for, we're doing like a, th- a series 3.5. Yeah, um, so we're not, calling, you know, we're not calling it a series four, but in the summer, we've basically already started from all of our back catalogue recording mini-sodes. So we've got six mini-sodes, which are like, you know, how to raise money, how to exit, all that kind of stuff. So little, little clips from everyone that have been put together. Yeah. So that's being produced. And then six or seven of our live events as well. Mm. So the mini-series will be one live event one week, one mini-sode the next week, live event the next week, mini-sode yeah. the next week. And so that's like, what that's a really good thing about doing live events and having yeah. content is being able to mix it up and do something different. So that is quite a nice way because doing that, it's January now. I mean, mm. it's actually, you know, just about yeah. <laughs> 31st. So the reality is this would then give us content from now until August, which is amazing. And I don't really have to do anything for that much content. Like it's already done. But then I make that sound really easy and it's worth saying I've been recording for two and a half years. So, yeah, you've got yeah. people that you can trust to put stuff together as well. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> okay. got, exactly. And I've got an editor. Yeah. Correct. Whereas, yeah, the whole dilemma of getting content, having a budget to like deal with these things and do it all by yourself, that definitely, yeah. So, what is your plan for it? So I've recorded like another 12 episodes. So I'll go through the ones in the current way. And I do want to do more curating of things because I think I will learn as much from doing that anyway. Because I've started being asked a lot of like, okay, what's the biggest thing you've learned and stuff? And sometimes I come out with a good answer and sometimes I don't. I'd like to actually <laughs> condense all this sort of different knowledge across my head that's there into actual sort of workable knowledge that I can share better. Have you listened to Radio Lab? Some of their stuff, yes. I bet production is my mecca i would just yeah. love to put something out that was as well produced as that yeah exactly it'd be super good and then i'm also wanting to do um a bit of a have you heard the wear sunscreen song yeah of course yeah cool oh, not everyone has <laughs> but yeah i guess oh, you're at the right age in, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly the same age yeah but I was just thinking about like how powerful stories are and you just remember. So trying to remember any of the lyrics actually is a bit hard, but you just remember it was a good song. But I figured... Yeah, when it comes yeah. on, you kind of feel like you know the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. You just kind of sing along. So I think you can kind of obviously like a Desert Island Disc sort of interviews with um, guests instead, but using that and say like, okay, which of like the 10 lyrics in there most resonate with like a story in your life? So they can tell a story of their life through like these great lyrics and actually give you something that you can really remember from it and basically do that podcast to raise money for charity for cancer because it's like wear sunscreen and things. 
things. And so I find people with like deep stories about cancer. So maybe like Joe Malone could uh, be a good person for that as he had cancer and just sort of do something for good at the same time. Because I've been thinking about why I do most of what I do and like I kind of want to get rich so that I can change the world and do good stuff so why don't I just change the world doing good stuff if I can kind of find a cool way to do it directly so I kind of want to launch that now that I've got better at podcasting and doing these things. That's a good old uh, I mean I'm obviously going to fuck up the whole story because I'm recording it. Uh, there's a story about the guy on the beach who's like. Yeah the you know tuna fisher Yeah exactly guy. the tuna fisherman. You tell the yeah. story better than I can I hope so. <laughs> Maybe. So there's um, a guy who goes fishing for like a few hours each day and he catches like this amazing tuna and it's like delightful and there's a business guy in the restaurant who was like who caught this fish it's amazing this is the best fish ever and he's like oh what you only work like two hours a day what did you do yesterday oh i play with my daughter i walk on the beach he's like bro you're doing this wrong you need to go out fishing all day long and you're gonna like catch all this fish and then you're gonna make enough money to buy some more boats and you're gonna get some more boats and then we're gonna like set up like a factory and then after like 30 years you're gonna be a billionaire and you can come retire and you can like own this whole beach and it'll be great and the guy's like but why would I work all this so hard to then end up back on the beach where I can walk with my daughter who's now old and I just want to be walking on the beach anyway and just do the thing that you want to do straight away kind of thing yeah I think the version I had was this is virtually identical no it's virtually Mm. identical but it's like so why would I want to do all of that and he's like so that you can retire and sit on the beach like for almost the whole day which is the same thing yeah, yeah. No. Maybe you could have told it better after all. Nah, I'm not sure. I, mean, I like I like the restaurant in Joe. I wasn't actually going to go there. Yeah, it's 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 a hard one, isn't it? It just mm. depends, I guess. You know, it's philosophically what you want to give back to society and where you really feel like impact can be made. Mm. So you know, there's some people who. You know, logically, your Bill Gates is, is a really good example. Guy's a fucking prick. Like, he's literally one of the most heinous, shot, like spineless twat businessmen ever who fucked everyone over. I need to read more about Bill Gates before I agree with this. (laughs) Became one of the richest men in the world. Mm. And realized it wasn't about that and turned his whole entire life 180 to basically brand the second half of his life as an unbelievable philanthropist, contributor to society, fucking legend, and absolutely everything that you and I basically genuinely more commonly know Bill Gates as, which is just quite possibly one of the greatest contributors to meaningful causes and saving the world in any kind of way possible. And he wouldn't have got there if it wasn't for treading on absolutely everyone and being the most disgusting businessman you've ever fucking dealt with. I mean, you know, on a similar note, like Steve Jobs, who was like famously an absolute twat, got shat on all over by Bill Gates. I mean, Bill Gates is probably one of the only people who was ever able to fuck Steve Jobs over so much. You know, Microsoft have a massive stake in Apple. That's why they like stay so big. They basically bailed Apple out because they completely bent Steve Jobs backwards over and copied everything he did and completely fucked them. But you look at it and actually Steve Jobs was never an amazing philanthropist. Bill Gates is an unbelievable philanthropist. And then on the other side, you've got people who are just complete legends all their life, like Warren Buffett, but how many of them exist? Or George Soros. There's not many of them. Bill Gates is truly fascinating. Mm, yeah but if you aspire to do that then it means you've got to spend the first half of your life being a dick until you're successful but what if you're never successful you just have to be a dick all your whole life yeah. <laughs> and they go... no, that's exactly it but that's the thing like bill gates didn't start off in life trying to get back you look at the difference between someone like bill gates and warren buffett bill gates learned the meaning of life and mm. warren buffett has pretty much always lived by it like if you watch documentaries about warren buffett or read about him i mean he is such a legend in every kind of way he's a truly admirable human being and it's really interesting his success is pretty much based based on having a 
perfect, calm, sensible, and at, like incredible attitude towards contribution and the greater good. Whereas Bill Gates is like aggressively caught up with his output in philanthropy mm. by having a great moment of reflection. So it's super interesting how you can approach it like two different ways. But I mean, Warren Buffett's pretty much a mentor for Bill Gates in philanthropy anyway. Cool. So do you think that you'll move more into philanthropy when you get older? I think philanthropy is incredibly difficult and I am someone who's massively fascinated by social issues and I read about them a lot and I have lots of friends that run social enterprises of all sorts. Um, my friend Alex runs Beam, which helps homeless people. My friend Sasha runs Olio, which is amazing and yeah, I like food waste, basically. I just downloaded the Karma app, which I'd never used before, which, by the way, I hugely recommend which is restaurants around you that are giving away food at the end of the day, which pretty much, by the way, is just sushi restaurants. So it's fucking great. Wow. Picking up like sushi for £2.50 or whatever. It's excellent. Ooh. Anyway, so like all these guys are really solving smart problems that are around how, like food waste or homelessness, etc. But the reality is, the more you understand these businesses, the more you understand how delicate the ecosystem is. And you have to really intellectually understand what a meaningful contribution to philanthropy is. And in a lot of cases, sadly the answer is money money going to the right hands the right people to solve the problems because there's a lot of people who think they're really smart at solving problems but they don't actually solve the problem they don't go deep enough to solve any kind of problem it's all very surface level it might feel really rewarding that you're doing it but frankly all that time and energy would probably be better spent you becoming fucking rich and giving most of your money to someone who knows exactly what they're doing because they've studied it their whole life i have a friend who runs a mate like an amazing coaching program called spark inside where she gets basically prisoners that are like she rehabilitates uh, prisoners through coaching and helps them understand their purpose etc so they're able to come back into society and contribute it's stuff like that is really deeply meaningful and interesting but you know she went to harvard and studied social justice and like these are like not fair weather minds going into these things these are people who like dedicate their whole life to solving really hard social challenges i think where i've got to by being so inspired by my friends doing this stuff is to be very cautious with it all to know that one of the best contributions i can meaningfully give and this is with feedback to me as well from a lot of them is to put my money where my mouth is as often as possible to support the causes that are right because there's a lot of people trying to solve a lot of problems and doing extremely inefficiently without actually understanding actually a lot of the problems, for example, that the government already has figured out and tried to solve. There's a lot of people going around there being like, the government does this wrong or that wrong and stuff. And it's like, it actually does a better job than you realise about some of those things. And they've thought about those things a certain way and it's more complicated than that. And that tends to be the most common feedback I get from my friends doing social enterprises. Yeah, that's a hard one. I remember my friends, like computer scientists, and quite a few of them were quite ethical and they wanted to sort of try and solve different problems like homelessness and things. And they're like, want to build an app for it. But then they went and speak, spoke to some home showers. They said, well, mainly, probably the best thing you can do is just donate socks because of they don't have any washing. And if we can give them fresh mm -hmm. socks, they're going to have less diseases and things. And yeah. they're like, oh, but we want to build like a computer program. And they're like, well, pfft. I don't know, spend time earning money with your computer skills and give it away rather than... I, I did have an idea for, seeing as you mentioned apps, not quite the same, but I did have an idea for developing a super low cost, I don't know how though, I guess product like Square, which you could distribute to everyone that's homeless, which is they just hold it and it basically like receives, they get like an account on it and everyone that just taps it with their card donates a pound because I think yeah. one of the most common things is, and I so what I personally do is I take out cash, I go buy a coffee 
I use all of the change on the coffee in my coin pocket. I give yeah. a pound out to everyone because it's just something that I like to do. Nice. But it's a faff. And yeah. most people don't have change on them. And we're moving towards a cashless society so fast. And that is actually, if you've ever stopped and talked to a homeless person and you ask them about stuff, they're like, people just don't have change or anything meaningful yeah, yeah. to give and people won't give notes. But if that was a well-known thing, you were able to give a real simple like bank account and like, mm. you know receiver to it and they were able they would probably collect quite a lot of money because people I think are well intentioned they do they do a pound yeah you'd have to do something about it because if if <laughs> if the guy's there saying oh yeah I accept credit card and he's homeless I'd be a bit like what <laughs> but if it was sort of shown to be like you know the same way that like you know a big issue is part of like the scheme and things yeah, so like yeah. okay it's like the homeless sort of giving thing and like yeah could use that yeah it'd be lovely it's a shame because you know we are like increasingly moving to a cashless society and that really fucks people like that yeah definitely yeah it's just i hate having any <laughs> i you barely ever have any cash on me let alone any change exactly and most and... people don't and i only take cash out for that because i don't need it for anything else yeah so i literally purposefully do it otherwise i wouldn't have cash i'd be like everyone else yeah do you want to give a bit of your background like how did you get to where you are Sure. So I started off in um, advertising, which is a great place to start if you took English and art history at university so you could devolve any decision making about what you wanted to do with your life. I did that. I graduated in the recession and started working in a pub, which my parents were delighted about. Stayed there for a year. Um, ended up, I was terrible at manual labour and doing things like changing the pipes, etc. But I'm very good at standing on my feet and talking to people. Ended up talking myself into a job to go work in advertising, an agency. I spent four years in advertising. I ended up getting poached by a competitor on a sales call that I was doing. Um, who offered me a lot more money to go work for him. So I said, yes, that sounds great. Um, he basically became a bit of a mentor to me. And I spent two years working for him. And in the end, he wanted to leave and set up his own advertising agency with me as his like employee one slash co-founder. So we did that. The problem was he always felt like my boss. It just didn't work. It didn't feel even. We had a really open conversation. In fact, funny enough, I spoke to him today. We're still really close. But it just I called it really early like within six months I was like you're always away I'm always in the office basically we're not getting paid we're building something we're trying really hard to work on clients but it's just not I can map this out into the future it's not working so I called it quits started speaking to my best mate Joel who's at PwC really entrepreneurial far more entrepreneurial than me in his nature on the basis of he was basically trying to get fired by PwC pretty much by being too entrepreneurial for them he ended up actually with an unconditional leave offer from them which means he can go back at any time he likes which is pretty cool and he suggested that we start a daily deal business which for anyone that remembers was like the days of Groupon being really popular so this is about eight years ago and so we did we started a business like that we used third-party software from the Ukraine and just found out how to do all this internet type shit together launched a product went viral immediately which was amazing so we got one of our deals on uh, discovered by Hot Deals UK or one of those websites it was like a Martin Johnson type website and it just went completely viral from that. We didn't have any employees, we didn't have any investors, we didn't have any fucking clue what we were doing, but it was our first ever insight into what it can be like to build something and launch it. And it was a completely unnatural lesson because uh, we've never learned this lesson ever again. But I mean, we went viral on like day one. So we did something like 100,000 sales in our first week. Wow. 
we had this offer from Hungry House, who'd also just launched recently, and I did a deal with their marketing director because he was a client of mine from advertising. And the deal was we got a Hungry House takeaway for five quid for free. So you bought a voucher for five quid, you could pretty much order whatever you wanted up to 15 quid's worth or whatever. So really good customer acquisition for them. Obviously went completely viral in the student market. Anyway, we got paid five pounds every single time someone redeemed it. So they put a huge customer acquisition cost on what they assumed. I think they assumed they might get like two or three thousand. They got almost a hundred thousand, almost put them out of business. So we, they had to pull the plug and we actually didn't have to pull the plug if we didn't want to contractually, but we felt fucking bad because we were cash rich so fast off nothing as well, by the way. These are like email vouchers. So we didn't even have any infrastructure or anything to do. Anyway, that was so successful that we were like, shit, what the fuck is our next deal going to be? Anyway, this, as you can imagine, all spiraled downwards. The benefit of having a smash hit first success like that is you can't beat it. So we really struggled from that point. And we actually made a decision which was super good and I've, I've generally been quite good at this in my life as I, I'm not enjoying this this is a customer service business like our customers hate us because we can't get a good enough deal we're not differentiated enough from other people what is it we're really doing and also do you really want to be in the daily deal business I mean the, the last point was actually a question Joel asked me and I was like no I don't and he's like well me neither so okay why don't we email all of our users and tell them that we're thinking about shutting down and just see what people's reaction is so we emailed like a hundred thousand people uh, that we were going to shut down not a single person responded like they gave a shit so we're like, you know, there's just nothing here. So yeah. let's just take the money and run before. Because I mean, every single week we'd been spending our money like to get better and better deals, but it was still diminishing returns. We're like, let's just pull the cord. We've got money. Let's just do something smart with it. So took the money out, bought apartments with mortgages and like gave a little bit of cash for us to live on. We actually did something quite cool. Um, we had basically about... We put 15 grand each into a bank account to start a new business and put 15 grand towards our salaries. So as in 15 grand to live on for the year in London. So we're like, we're doing this super lean. We had to pay mortgages out of that as well. But like, we're like super, super, super lean. Let's see if we can start a new business on basically this 30 grand startup capital that's our own, not pay ourselves for a year beyond this like 15 grand in our bank account. Anyway, so that's actually how we started Grabble, which was our last company. We started it with a website, which was a pilot of shit did it for a year didn't know anything about developing our own website made every mistake with a developer you could ever possibly make hired the worst people ever 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 had no clue what we were doing went to like trade show in the NEC in Birmingham and our website was down and the whole thing was a total waste of time like you name it it was just a shit show but it was super fun and we absolutely loved it anyway after nine ten months or whatever we'd been building feature after feature after feature doing exactly what you shouldn't do because we didn't really have a clue and suddenly we were like, you know, running out of money. This is all terrible. What are we going to do? We're going to run out of money like so soon. And we're like, let's just flip the whole thing to mobile. That's probably going to be something that's interesting. I reckon people will shop on their mobile phones. Yada, yada, yada. So again, this is about seven years ago. And so we flipped the thing to mobile. We got this outsourced agency in Pakistan that we just like randomly met on work in startups. And we had like five grand left to build a prototype before we were completely fucked. We threw out the whole entire year's worth of users, which was so painful because I think by that point we'd maybe amassed a thousand registrations on the website and we did not know what we were doing but we got a thousand registrations and you know everything was shit but we were like these are a thousand precious customers so this idea of doing this mobile thing was terrifying anyway flipped to mobile learned how to trend on Twitter locked ourselves in a room for like a week basically planning a Twitter viral campaign completely nailed it didn't expect to so we launched this campaign on a Sunday night I've actually got a talk on YouTube about how specifically 
actually retrended. So I won't do that now, but it's on Silicon Reel. And so is it like the exact process of how we did it back then? Anyway, we didn't expect to be trending. So it's Sunday night, we're sitting in the Hoxton Hotel because we didn't have an office. And so we were just like having a drink at like 9pm or something. Campaign's going on and it just starts blowing up and our servers go down, obviously, because we're like expecting it's like fuck, called our systems administrator in Poland, <laughs> Peter uh, Piotr, who was incredibly nice and actually got everything up and running again. He was pretty annoyed with us. He was like, why on earth wouldn't you tell me that you're doing a viral campaign? And we're like, genuinely, we don't know what we're doing. Like, we've never yeah. had a problem with traffic. It's not something we thought of ever. So anyway, you had a complete viral smash hit, became the number one trending hashtag on Twitter. And we had this like whole Tinder for fashion style thing with our app. Anyway, went straight into the top of the app store. And um, the, the moment we launched it, pretty much like same night. And from that point on, we were able to raise money so easily. We did like a, we had like, we're out of money in two or three weeks. But hey, we've just launched our app on the app store. It's gone straight in at number one with the number one trending hashtag on Twitter. Yada, yada, yada. People obviously threw money at us to keep us alive very quickly so we got incredibly lucky last minute it was totally a case of death by a thousand paper cuts in the year before like learning how to do everything wrong on web and then throwing caution to the wind just throwing the whole thing away and doing a mobile app and just seeing how quickly yeah we got ten thousand registrations in one night we spent a whole year getting to a thousand so that was our first taste of like, shit, you can do something really interesting here. Anyway, that journey was incredibly fun. So with Gravel, we spent four years building it to the number one shopping app in the UK for a little period. It was the number one shopping app in Europe, overtaking ASOS and Zara. It was super cool. And um, we won lots of awards, including the most recent one, I think that was cool, was TechCrunch, the Europa's uh, best mobile startup of 2017, which was great. But that was at a period when we were starting to realize our business model wasn't sustainable, the business would not work, and fundamentally, we needed a fuck ton of cash to make it work. So it just seemed so completely ridiculous, and we would need tens of millions of pounds. By this point, we've raised maybe three-ish, three and a half million pounds, and it's just a burning pit of money. And a lot of these mobile apps are, oh, the margins are terrible. The expertise you have to have is incredibly technical and very high. We had incredibly competent people who were very expensive, but very worth their salary because they were fucking smart. We learned a shitload from them. You know, forensically intelligent people with data and metrics and growth and all this stuff. But, you know, no matter what you did, the margin just wasn't growing. So we realized it probably wasn't a sensible business to spend the rest of our life doing, which was painful because by this point we had over a million users. We had to end up winding that all back down yeah were you able to like package it up and sell it to someone is something they could expand or no i mean so we technically still own all the ip we built a software platform that essentially helps you build mobile apps faster so we then designed and launched another app as a hackathon called popcorn which again went viral but in a completely different way i've, I've written a blog about doing the hackathon and how we created popcorn we've never even done a tweet for it it doesn't have any social media or anything but it just went completely viral because it got featured by apple because they fucking loved it, it became the number one app in scandinavia saudi arabia super random wow. it's a movie trailers app it's very beautiful we had amazing designers and it's like all the stuff is best in class design and best in class user experience experience is always like our brand promise that's what our thing was um, we're very design conscious people but the reality is we didn't really think about putting a business model particularly into popcorn either because we weren't expecting it to go viral so that one got to a million downloads within like two months so much faster than Grabble. but that's also because it was international and Grabble wasn't Grabble was just uk based because it was shopping so shopping for e-commerce products in, in the uk whereas obviously movies you can watch anywhere so the growth opportunity is so much bigger which was an interesting learning for us anyway we've got all the IP for the software platform and everything else but by 
the time we came to a decision that there's actually just not enough margin in these things and we've kind of fallen out of love with what we were doing and with a software platform there's just so many hurdles and issues and it's so expensive to run a team like that talking over £100,000 a month on team costs for development when we realised all that stuff and we only had a certain amount of cash left in the bank we decided that it wasn't responsible to carry on doing this like Mm. there was a serious point where we just realized we couldn't afford to continue we weren't going to realize our dream we weren't going to get to cash flow positive and become this incredibly profitable company which is obviously what you need to become in order to have a decent business uh, before we ran out of cash so we did all the projections we did emergency scenarios all this like alternative planning and realized it just wasn't going to happen so we'd been on this like amazing journey got really far with it and basically had to throw the whole thing in so been working with an amazing team had to let everyone go obviously everyone was incredibly understanding like in terms of letting everyone go i mean i saw one of my colleagues last night she came to the event still really close with all of our colleagues but in terms of how this stuff actually goes it's hard letting people go is a whole other conversation it's really difficult but when you're letting everyone go at the same time there's actually something quite poetic and helpful everyone's in it together could be supportive together was actually really helpful and everyone was really considerate joel and i and how we felt about doing it as well because by that point you're all one family and that was in the summer. So we went back to investors and basically offered them the remainder of their money back. Or we can start from scratch, but we need to spend our time thinking about what we're going to build and why we're going to build it. And that, you know, there has to be margin in that business. And it has to be something that we're interested in. It has to be consumer facing because that's what we're good at. Ideally, a mobile component. Anyway, you name it. So yes, I've been through a bit of a, an unusual journey with everything. And what's interesting is I feel like I failed twice because technically I have. But from an entity point of view, the company's still going and still has cash in it because we've been, always been very careful about how we spend people's money. That's really good to hear. Do you feel like you could have done better market research and business modeling up front to yeah. the predicted stuff? I rarely say this, but definitely not. Because the thing that caught us out, that caught everyone in the mobile industry out, was everyone used e-commerce metrics to design their business models. So the e-commerce metrics that everyone was using were web-based. And on web-based, you could basically get a click from a website that threw traffic to that website, and you would take an affiliate commission, or alternatively, you were designing a content model around it. But understanding the attribution model from what happened on web and e-commerce when someone opens a new window and is still in a purchasing mindset and willing to go through with a purchase was what everyone in the industry had to use for mobile full stop what no one can predict using the same model is the friction involved with downloading an app engaging in an app getting a sign up like all the stuff from there and then keeping the customer service going you are able to be such a better company with that amount of data you're able to keep a user so much more engaged but the cost the efficiencies don't work that's essentially what ruined our business but we're not the only ones with every single every single mobile commerce business full stop in the UK and the US that I am aware of, whether they raise 50 million, there's one that raised 75 million, they're all out of business. And that's why, because everyone used the same logic, which is e-commerce metrics. Now everyone's smarter because they understand how much harder things are on mobile. But back then you had no idea. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah, so you kind of have to like you have to throw yourself explore at and be at the front it, exactly. in case it is like the next Amazon kind of thing. But that was basically it. It's like you know we were super ambitious with it. We threw yeah. caution to the wind. We went for it. People backed us to do that because that's literally how you have to pick a winner in a in an emerging market. No one knows the answer. We had some theories, and people were like, they seem like rational theories. Why the fuck not? Let's do it. We were wrong. So was everyone. That is literally just how it's panned out. Yeah, yeah. It's the funny thing about sort of. If you only listen to like Google or like people have been hugely successful, like so much of it is actually luck. It's not just pure yeah, skill. Pl- it's placing the right it's bets. It's the other people that are doing 
similar yeah. things really sensibly. Yeah. And you often have to do things wrong, like not do full market research or something to actually be in the best position to make the most use of the market before it's too late exactly. kind of thing. <laughs> like, this stuff is impossible, dude. Yeah. Like some people say it's first mover advantage. Some people say like well, we're successful because we went last and we yeah. copied what everyone else had done wrong. There isn't a playbook to this stuff. Yeah, that's why it's so hard when people ask me like, what's the number one lesson from the podcast? I'm like, well, you can kind of be really successful in like 10 different ways. <laughs> you just have to sort of have a story that works for you and at the right time, at the right moment, at the right thing. And Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wrote an article. I don't know if I've, I shared it with you actually, but I wrote an article on how to launch a podcast, how to mm. launch, grow, distribute, produce absolutely everything with all the links and everything in it. And it's really interesting because obviously look, like a lot of people got back to me and like, these are my ambitions for it, et cetera, et cetera. And when you drill down into it, like, I've asked, for example, someone came to me and they're like, we're doing one, you know, but how do we get thousands of listeners? Okay, well, what's your business? They're like, well, we're a B2B retail consultancy. And I was like, but then you only need 10 listeners. Like you genuinely, if your job is to sell high value tickets, anyone listening to a deeply technical B2B retail technology podcast is a potential client. Mm. So your ROI is a completely different ballgame. Like you don't want thousands. Of, I mean, that'd be yeah. nice, but like you shouldn't give a shit about that any more than you would in a in a sales funnel. You want 10 quality listeners, then you can upsell to them. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so you want to put all the public people off if it's sort of something anyone can listen to it's not useful for yeah exactly so i think people forget like what the purpose of the thing i'm trying to power is yeah Yeah, that's really fascinating what's the kindest thing someone's ever done for you that is a great question nick jenkins has lent me his house that's nice yeah (laughs) and i met him doing the podcast he's just a legend he's so nice i was throwing a massive party for 70 people all entrepreneurs and it's a bit of a basically like it was a retreat kind of thing it's like you know we're all stressed we're all this we're all that looking for a venue and i was just mentioning to him casually i didn't even know he had a massive i just didn't know i was just talking to him about it being like you should come but i don't know where i'm gonna do it do it at my place uh, we're just doing it up at the moment but you can come down so like i went and it's in wiltshire and you know i went and they were still doing it up and stuff and it's like, but by the time you want to do it it was like october and i was doing it in march or something it was like it'll all be done by then you know do you like it etc it's like this is unreal like it was as beautiful and anyway, that was super kind yeah wow um, so he's a really lovely guy and i don't know i mean my wife makes my life so much easier by doing shitloads of kind things she cooks for me a ton or i should say cooks for us a ton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. i'm not just like a bottomless pit of feeding but you know she knows that i like to eat really healthy she knows that i like um yeah how did she find the vegan transfer hard because she but so did i and now we're pescatarian we eat fish and eggs but that's it and so like very very plant-based really hard but she's always open-minded to stuff is is difficult but with that stuff you know i don't have the time i couldn't do all the stuff i do if i didn't spend 95 percent of my time working so i don't you know big difference between me and my business partner for example if i ask him what he did on the weekend he spends tons of time with his family i don't really have a family i've basically just got my mum. so i go for lunch with my mum every sunday and we have lunch that's like two hours out of my day i then don't really see my friends which is not good but i'm like quite systematic now about what i do but i spend almost every saturday and sunday working on something like my podcast or whatever because monday to friday i'm in my office working on my thing usually sunday i'm working on it too so i give myself like a day a week to work on like podcast 
or other interests, whatever it might be, writing a blog post, etc. I'd say I work like 95% of my time because I absolutely love it and I find it really creatively fulfilling. Now, I don't have time to cook and do things like that as well. My wife is massively accommodating because of it. So I find that very kind because it enables me to have the lifestyle I want. Yeah, yeah. Helps you to be more successful and happy and things. Yeah, exactly. I had a good um, definition of success from one of my guests where he said um, success is productivity plus creativity. I'm like, yeah, basically, <laughs> when being creative and productive at the same time, that's pretty much perfect. And oh, I yeah, think it gets in the way of that is. Well, yeah, I would completely agree. I think mean, that's a really smart way of putting it. You know, for us at Dawn, soon to be heights, fingers crossed, trademark pending. But we have a metric which is uh, four hours of productive work a day so we don't care if we work 12 hours or four hours but yeah. we're both optimizing to get four hours of productive work done it's very hard and we've tried loads of different things but it's a really like that is essentially for us what it's all about and i think having like growth mindset towards how you improve on each little area like every small mm. little step you take like we always talk about like the dave railsford theory of marginal gains so yeah like one percent every day is like it's huge nice. Precisely. So, I mean, we try to optimize probably less than 1% every single day, but it does stack up and we do get closer to our four hours of productive work a day, which is a lot of productive work. We never used to get that at Gravel and we achieve quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. So, yeah, I've definitely found that reviews when you're doing like sprint planning and stuff at the end is always just makes it so much more effective each time. Iteratively. Yeah, reflections. Well, that was Dan Murray Serta, an absolute legend, inspiring entrepreneur, and just all-round nice chap in general. Now, it may have sounded like that interview ended a little abruptly, and that's because it did end quite abruptly. Dan had to run off to a meeting, and that was the end of that. But we were poignantly talking about reflections, so I am now about to launch into my reflections from the episode. So it kind of works out nicely, I guess. There were so many useful lessons that it's quite insane and hard to really pick just three. But anyway... That's all I've got for my top tip section. So here are my top three tips from the podcast. Number one, shut up and listen. If you're interviewing someone, use your ears and not your mouth. Every time you're speaking, that's time when your guest isn't. Your podcasts or any other form of interviews will just get much better when you stop trying to control the interview and make it about you and just focus on the person that you're talking to. Number two, plan out your ideas. With solid preparation, Dan managed to get 10,000 users in one night. That's insane. Compared to so many ideas I've seen with people spending years to get just 1,000 users or you just get caught up running around doing all these different things and not focusing your effort on like the most important area to get the most leverage and the most users. So this is definitely an example of the 80-20 rule that he just took to the extreme and it just leads into my next tip. Number three. Focus on a niche. Dan's podcast is a highly focused podcast on just specifically great business leaders with just a crazy amount of experience. He's released 16 episodes a year and in the last two years he's had over a million listeners and I'm sure that this year the podcast is going to go stratospheric. It's uh, it's just a really solid podcast that you know exactly what you're getting and why you're listening and you just share it with people because it's so good. And when you focus on just a quality niche it's much easier to grow what you do and it can just take a lot less effort. So it's a sad truth for myself that I'm just too interested in too many things to really like nail myself down to one concept for the podcast. And I love being able to talk to so many fascinating humans about different things. But I'm definitely going to change my tactics for the podcast and become more of a seasonal podcast where I go deep into one specific niche at a time and really make high quality content just for that field. 
And um, yeah, it's been pretty inspiring learning from him and to, yeah, <laughs> realize the top mistakes and top tips that I should be following and um, go in that direction. Uh, now onto books. I know for a fact that some of Dam's favorite books are Lost Connections by Johan Hari and 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Another favorite book of his is How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan which we will both be discussing in depth on a future podcast that you can look forward to in my upcoming Mindset Book Club that I'm going to be hosting. You've just listened to an episode of the Growth Mindset Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating as these go a really long way. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, try sharing the show with a friend who will, or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to chat, then please reach out to me on Twitter at Sam Harris Tweets or Instagram at Sam Jam Snaps. Show notes and other links to topics discussed in the episodes are available at the website growthmindsetpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Give yourself a big hug from me. If you're with a friend, give them a hug as well. And I hope you enjoy your next podcast. <laughs>